Uh, we're taking the Sundays, taking advantage of the Sundays in September to move through John 17. Obviously, not enough time for every verse. Uh, I wish we could just go through word for word, but we're going to hit the high points as we go through. As I'm saying that, if you have your textbook, I'm a teacher, okay? I never claim to be a preacher. I'm a teacher. Every teacher wants class members bring their textbook to class, okay? So, um, and sometimes it looks like this, all right? If you want to unroll a scroll, that's up to you. It, uh, however you have it, uh, bring your textbook and turn to John 17. We'll be there in just a little bit as we're looking at Jesus' prayer of inter- uh, intercession, which he prayed on the way to the Garden of Gethsemane, uh, the night he was arrested, the night before he was crucified. And as he prayed, he was able to make a statement, which I trust you have caught and caught fully. He was able to say with confidence and absolute certainty. Listen to it again. He said, I have glorified you on the earth. I have finished the work which you have given me to do. Verse four, I have finished the work. What a powerful statement. You see, he had lived the perfect life. He had done for us what we continually fail at doing. He was, he is, he shall always be the lamb without spot and without blemish. He is, he was, and he shall always be the lamb slain before the foundation of the world. And he could cry out from the cross, it is finished, because he had done everything he had been sent to do. But in his praying, he doesn't stop there. He doesn't stop by just opening the curtains of heaven and let you see what's going on so that uh, you will know that he did complete his task. Um, he, he didn't stop there. He loved his own so much that in the dark hour before his suffering, he prays for his disciples. It's like he, I don't know whether it was spontaneous or he had a plan. I, I don't know. I guess he, God always has a plan. But it seems spontaneous as suddenly he just stops and he begins begins to pray. Before he leaves and returns to glory, he prays to his father and asks that he take care of them through their dark hour. Because you see, um, we too are his disciples. When just those 11 who followed him that night to the Garden of Gethsemane, we are his disciples uh, and so we are included in that prayer. And uh, as his followers, I can tell you, it's not always easy fulfilling that calling. Uh, I, I, I love to sing, you know, how, it, how sweet to trust in Jesus. Okay. Uh, it, it's, it's sunshine and it's wonderful. I, that's true, but I'm going to tell you, it's not easy. If you think it's easy living the Christ life, then you've never really started living it because it isn't easy. It's a, it's a difficult calling. So I want to ask you this morning, I ask everyone here of all age, okay, because we're well represented. 
uh, age-wise, and that's a very, very good thing. Let, let me ask you, do you ever get frustrated trying to live for Jesus? You ever get frustrated? You ever get tired? Just, just tired. Do you fail? Do you disappoint yourself? Uh, do you ever make new res- resolutions and then you break those resolutions time after time after time again? Well, if that is you, if you say yes, then you are not alone. In the 1800s, Charles Haddon Spurgeon was probably the best known preacher in all the world. Uh, from his pulpit and through his publications, which were sent out uh, every week, he ministered to millions of people and, and multitudes were led to Christ through the preaching and the ministry of Charles Haddon Spurgeon. He, he was a man who was, uh, even now is called the Prince of Preachers. He preached boldly. He taught emphatically. He lived uncompromisingly. Yet his per, his personal life was a struggle. Most people didn't know it, but it, it was a struggle. He went through periods of tremendous depression. Often he felt like he was accomplishing and had accomplished nothing in his life. And he once confessed that he said, I've got the blackest heart in Britain. Wow. Here's a man who's on top of the world spiritually, it seems. And he says, I got the blackest heart in Britain. He said that he would sometimes go out into his garden alone and he'd raise up his hands to God and pray, Lord, I've, I've never desired you more, yet my heart has never been so low. Why is this happening to me? Now, if Spurgeon had a hard try- time living the life, I wonder about us. I wonder if there's some of you here this morning can relate to that. Life is not always predictable. We like for it to be, but it's, but it's not. It's hard, and sometimes just getting by can seem like a monumental task. We struggle, we stumble, we pick ourselves up only to fall again, and feel that we are failing everyone around us, especially God. Say, Pastor, why are you so negative? Because it's true. I think we ought to get it out on the table. I mean, why, why pretend that we're something that we're not? We'll never be any different. A, a person never gets well till they first recognize they're sick. Fact is, depression's real. We might like to deny it, but depression is real. And failure, now listen, failure is a real possibility. It really is. And any, any one of us, can get caught in the web of despair and defeat. It can happen to anyone. During those times, uh, we might be like Job. You remember I mentioned him last week. Um, remember how he felt God had treated him unjustly. He was treated unfairly. And he keeps saying, I, I wish that I uh, could just go to God and plead my case. If we could sit down at a table with one another. If I had a mediator who could go between us, I could plead my case. Sometimes we're like Job. Other times we're like David, who was the first one to say in Psalm 22, My God, my God, why hast thou 
thou forsaken me? Been there? Done that? Thought that? Said that? We need help. We need direction. We need encouragement. We need to know that it's not just possible to get through this life. You really can enjoy the trip. There can be joy in it. Uh, that's what Jesus promised. That was his promise. It's what he wants for you this morning. Listen to him. I have come that they may have life and that they may have it more abundantly. Abundantly means it'll blow your mind. It'll blow your mind. He says, most assuredly, I say to you that you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice and you will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will be turned into joy. Weeping may endure for a night, but joy comes in the morning. And yes, Jesus inspired that too. Okay. Joy comes in the morning. So before Jesus went to the cross... Um, He prayed a prayer in which every true believer can find himself. You can find yourself in this prayer. He prayed this prayer for you and me. Prayed it for us. He was leaving and he knew that he would be gone for a long time. And in the interim, he prayed for our welfare and for our well-being. You see, the enemy's uh, ultimate defeat took place on Calvary's cross, but he's not giving up without a fight. If you don't believe it, read the second chapter of Ephesians where the Apostle Paul calls him the prince of the power of the air. And there's a whole lot of air moving around right now. He's not going to give up uh, without, without a, uh, without a fight. And you and I are in the crosshairs of his demonic weaponry, especially pastors, especially. He tempts us, he tests us, and probably worst of all, he distracts us from what we ought to be doing. And often we end up not just being in the, now I hope you're listening to me, oftentimes we end up not just being in the world, but we begin to look a whole lot like the world. Not much difference. And how do we usually justify ourselves? Well, I just can't help it. I'm just weak. It's just the way I am. Well, poor thing. Is that life? Well, Jesus prayed for something else. So let's read about it. Beginning this morning with verse 9, John chapter 17. Jesus says, I pray for them. I do not pray for the world, but for those whom you've given me, for they are yours, and all mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I am glorified in them. Now I am no longer in the world, but these are in the world, and I come to you. Holy Father, keep through your name those whom you have given me, that they may be one as we are. While I was with them in the world, I kept them in your name. Those whom you gave me, I have kept. And none of them is lost except the son of perdition, that the scripture might be fulfilled. But now I come to you, and these things I speak in the world, that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. I've given them your word, and the world has hated them, because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. 
I do not pray that you should take them out of the world, but that you should keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Now, did you hear that? Let me, let me read that, just encapsulate it just a bit. I do not pray that you would take them out of the world, but that you should keep them from the evil one, that they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. So let me ask you this morning, very practically, okay? How do you stand strong when the warring gets rough? Oh, when it's, when sweet times and every, when it's revival time. Well, we can sing those songs with joy, but how about when the bottom falls out? How do you keep going then? Or as you see in the title, how can a believer be in the world, but not of the world? Well, Jesus did it, and he's our grand example. At a time in his earthly ministry, when he was experiencing the most stress And the greatest pressure, pressure so great that he described it like this. I am so sorrowful, sorrow so intense that it it is crushing the life out of me. That's how he described it. He is praying for us. How did he do it? Well, let me call your attention, first of all, to the first part of that, that prayer. It says, Jesus spoke these words, lifted up his eyes to heaven and said... Where were Jesus' eyes? Were they on a cross? Were they on Judas? Where were Jesus' eyes? They were looking up. He was looking at his father. His eyes were on heaven. You'd be looking at that tonight. Uh, It was on the glory to be revealed. So let let me say this morning, do you have anything really good in your future? If you're a true follower of Christ, is there something good in your future? Yes, indeed. Paul wrote about it. Listen to how he described it. For I consider that the sufferings, we might say the pressures, the disappointments, the bottom fallouts of of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. That's why the author of Hebrews was able to command you, lay aside every weight and the sin which so easily ensnares you, and run with endurance the race that is set before you, looking unto Jesus. Looking unto Jesus. Looking unto Jesus, the author and the finisher of your faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. So this morning, let me share with you three things just to keep in mind. These are very practical. Uh, If you take notes, fill in the blank or whatever, just follow along. Three simple things that I'd put before. If you want to, if you want to be in the world, but not of the world, if you want to get through the difficult times, number one, focus upon the one who uniquely loves you. Focus upon the one who uniquely loves you. Word unique is unique, comes from the word unas, which means one. One of a kind, only one, nothing else like it. There's nothing like Jesus' love. Charles Weigel was born in 1871 in Lafayette, Indiana. He became a follower of Christ at an early age. And he went to school, he studied music, 
He ended up becoming an itinerant evangelist and a songwriter. But being away from home took its toll upon his family. And after one evangelistic crusade, he returned home and found a note from his wife. It simply said that she had had enough of this life of an evangelist and was leaving him. Charles records that he entered into the darkest days of his life. For years, he was depressed, even contemplated suicide. And wondered if anyone really cared about him. Does anybody care about me? But one thing about Charles White, he wouldn't give up. He wouldn't stop what he was called to do. He trusted the Lord anyway. And when he finally came through those dark days, he wrote a song. Maybe you've heard of it. Maybe you've sung it. I would love to tell you what I think of Jesus. Since I found in him a friend so strong and true, I would tell you how he changed my life completely. He did something that no other friend could do. Help me, choir. No one ever cared for me like Jesus. There's no other friend so kind as he No one else could take the sin and darkness from me. Oh, how much he cares for me. If you're a true follower of Christ, I can tell you with all certainty, no one cared for you like Jesus. Look again at what he says, verses 9 and 10. I pray for them. I do not pray for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours and all mine are yours and yours are mine and I'm glorified in them. There's probably nothing as pitiful as somebody having a pity party. I tell you, only one shows up. Sorry party anyway, okay? Some people, however, don't seem to be happy until they have something to be miserable about. But it doesn't make a lot of sense for a follower of Christ to be that way. Just doesn't. Believers, we are the objects of his love. That's something to be excited about. We ought to be excited about the fact Jesus loved us. Isn't that what we tell little children? Jesus loves me, this I know. That's the simplest fact. The gospel's in that simple song. And notice, uh, Jesus didn't pray for the world. Does Jesus love the world? John 3.16 says he does, Right? God loves the world. But when Jesus prays for his own, uh, those whom the Father has given him, he prays specifically and he prays passionately. Passionately praying for you. In fact, that's the way he treated you in the beginning. Truth is, he called you to himself by name. I don't, don't ask me to explain that. But when I read the Bible, I find that when Jesus called me, he didn't say, hey, you. No, Jesus said, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. Jesus is the good shepherd. And what does he say? The good shepherd calls his sheep by name. And he says that he called you by name. Believer, 
He knows you. He knows you. He knew you before there was a, a, the first star in the universe. Before he called it. He already knew you. Again, I don't understand that. I, I, I read this book and I have to say, I can't understand it. I just better believe it. Paul wrote a good portion of the New Testament. But in 1 Corinthians 13, he says, we know in part. But one day I'm going to be there and I'll know even as I am known. Listen, uh, he knew you. Uh, he, he knew you before the creation. Uh, he Listen to this. He knows you completely. Completely. Every flaw, every problem. Let me ask you, am I just the only one here? Does the devil ever get you down by reminding you what you used to be? I had a, had a lady, when I first came to Nanspin River, I had a young woman come in my office, obviously under great stress. And uh, when I tried to find out what was wrong with her, before she, she started crying. I mean, she wept. And I said, what, what's the problem? And um, she finally told me before she was saved, she had had an abortion. And the devil wouldn't let her forget it. And she was so guilty, she felt so guilty over that. But the point is, Jesus had forgiven her. Taking that baby to be with him. Okay? It was over. I said, you need to turn that into a ministry. There are a lot of women thinking about an abortion. You've been there. You can tell them a whole lot better than I can. The devil loves to bring up the past. But as I have said many times to other people, um, get alone, okay? Get alone and, and go out into a field somewhere or turn off all the lights when you're at the house by yourself and start crying out to God and say, God, I'm so sorry for what I used to be and, and the things that I used to do. And then stop and listen. And if you listen real carefully, you might hear God say, I don't know what you're talking about. All those things are gone as far as the East is from the West. He loves you completely. He loves you unconditionally. How good did you get to be before He saved you? It was while we were yet sinners Christ died for us. Not only that, but believer, He has saved you eternally. Hebrews puts it this way. You are, if you're a follower of Christ, you've been saved, you ready this? To the uttermost. Saved to the uttermost. That means completely, perfectly, utterly. Nothing left to be done. No matter how things look, no matter how you feel, no matter how deep the hurt is, or, or, or the things that try to drive uh, to to pull you down, don't ever forget. Focus upon it as Jesus focused upon the glory yet to be revealed. Met upon it. God says, I have loved you with an everlasting love. Therefore, I have continued my faithfulness towards you. David encourages all God's people who know what it's like to be in the valley, to be in the pits. Psalm 103, he says, the steadfast love of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting on those who fear him. It don't ever stop. 
when the pressure's on and you begin to wonder if anybody cares, focus on the one who uniquely loves you. The second thing that I would suggest is focus upon the one who abundantly blesses you. What did Jesus pray? I like the way the New Living puts it. If you just bear with me, it translates it this way. Jesus says, now I am departing from the world. They are staying in this world, but I'm coming to you. Holy Father, you have given me your name. Now protect them by the power of your name so that they will be united just as we are. During my time here, I protected them by the power of the name you gave me. I guarded them so that not one was lost except the one headed for destruction, as the scriptures foretold. Now I'm coming to you. I told them many things while I was with them in this world so that they would be filled with my joy. Did you hear that? So they would be filled with my joy. Literally, that my joy might keep on filling them up. Keep on filling up. Joy. You know what joy is? Uh, and, and the meaning behind joy is that which, which causes joy, that which causes satisfaction and, and supreme fulfillment. That's joy. Um, and Jesus compared it to a woman in labor. How she rejoices when the baby's born. Now, I've never been in labor, okay? I made the mistake of telling my wife, listen, it's a piece of cake. Women been going through it since Eve. I only said that once, though, okay? Just one time. Some of you ladies can relate. There's that point where you just want to reach out and slap your husband, okay? But then when the baby's in your arms, when the baby's there... It is, it's joy. Jesus says that he pray, he prays that, that you would continually be filled with his joy. And listen, folks, it's not the joy before you that's going to come. It's not the joy behind you that you once experienced. It's not the joy around you that other people are having. It's joy in you. It's inside. Uh, God's joy is not like a fountain that you run to when you get thirsty. No, it's like a well within that keeps filling you up. That's what Jesus told the woman at the well in John 4. He says, anyone who drinks the water I give will never thirst, not ever. The water I give will be an artesian spring within gushing fountains of endless life. Woo! Wow! One of the biggest problems in the world uh, with people is that nothing seems to fully satisfy. Nothing continues uh, to, to make you feel fulfilled. Cars grow old. Ever see those cars, uh, the trucks go down the road with smash cars? Okay. There may be uh, 30 smash cars tied down on a flatbed. You know, every one of those one day was the pride of somebody's payment book. Okay. <laughs> I mean, they, they were so proud uh, uh, of that. But let me tell you what, cars disintegrate, houses, people in Miami and going to find out they fill up with water. When water comes up, money will slip through your fingers. Even youth, uh, they all lose their luster 
and their value. But what Jesus gives just keeps getting better and better and better, more satisfying. The older you get and the longer you walk with him, the sweeter he grows. I hear people say, God bless me with this. He bless me with that. But you can take it to the bank. The greatest blessing God gives is when he blesses you with himself. That's the greatest blessing. It's not the things we have. It's himself. Yes, heaven's my home. I look forward to going there one day. But until I arrived, he's placed heaven in me. Paul says, Christ in you, the hope of glory. And that hope isn't just in the future. It's right now. It's, we have him now. It's for right now. Here's another thought. His presence in your life makes you a different person. But it also makes the world seem like a different place. All those problems, when our eyes on Jesus, become opportunities. They no longer pull us down. It begins to raise us up. Oh, it's still, life is still filled with disappointments, disasters. There are always going to be valleys to cross, but every step is filled with purpose because he lives in us and we are alive in him. And that makes the difference. Believer, the next time you're tempted to hold a pity party, just focus your eyes upon Jesus and what he did for you and what he is even now promising, promising you. Why even says, listen to this, this is my, one of my favorite scriptures in the Bible, Romans eight twenty eight, And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. They're all working for the good. Why? Because he's in control, not the problem. You want to live in the world and not be of the world? Then focus upon the one who uniquely loves you. And focus upon the one who abundantly blesses you. And finally, I would suggest focus upon the one who has faithfully called you. He's called you. What did he pray? Verses 14 through 16, I've given them your word. And the world's hated them because they're not of the world, just as I'm not of the world. I do not pray that you should take them out of the world, but that you should keep them from the evil one. They're not of the world, just as I'm not of the world. When God called you, he put, he told you something the rest of the world doesn't know. He showed you something that the rest of the world has not seen. In fact, much of the world, if the truth be told, the majority of people in the world really think that the gospel, Christianity, the church, being a follower of Christ, all of that is just moros. Moros. In other words, you follow that, you're a moron. Okay. I, yeah, I'm telling you, I know that's the way the world feels because that's exactly what Paul says the world was saying about him. It's all just moros. Just moros. It's stupid. It's foolish. Nonsense. Narrow-minded. Intolerant. Bigoted. Same then as it is now. But listen to me. God called us in faith 
by faith and to faith. So that you and I might live for him no matter what. It's our purpose. It's our calling. It's why we're here. Notice Jesus specifically does not ask that we be taken out of the world. Only he just asks that we be protected from the evil one, from the devil. Listen, the devil would love to get rid of all of us. Wipe us out. Believe me when I say sometime in the future, and it may not be far away, a man is going to rise up in worldwide global prominence. And the, he's, going to be a, he's going to promise to be a peacemaker. And the whole world is going to flock to his doorstep. And I believe that one of the things that he's going to do, he's going to blame all of the world's problems on the church. On the church. Evil times are come. Devil would like to wipe us out. And why? Because we're called for such a time as this. We're not here by any accident. You're not here this morning by any accident. You, you may be over eight, maybe over 80. Uh, you're, it, it's no accident. We're here for a purpose. Uh, many have gone before us, but now it's our turn. We're here. And you and I are uniquely qualified to fulfill our mission. But don't be surprised if the world, at the world's reaction, you can write this down. Again, you can take it to the bank. When you stand for God's word, the world will stand against you. Don't be surprised. It's going to happen. But I would add to that a second thing. Don't forget, we are not responsible for the reception. We're only responsible for the proclamation. We proclaim God takes care of the rest. I tell people, I am not a gospel salesman. I'm just told to introduce people to Jesus. The rest is up to him. I can't save them. Only he can change their heart. Jesus prayed for you because he has faithfully called you to live for him this morning. And I can tell you when everything's falling apart, there's more going on in this world than anybody can see. God's at work and he's working through us. The question is, are we trusting him? Are you living for him? Are you willing to obey him no matter what? No matter what things look like, no matter how bad things get, are you still intent on glorifying him? Church, focus on Jesus. Turn your eyes upon Jesus. Father, I thank you for sending Jesus and for those moments when before he went to the cross, he prayed for us. I thank you that you anointed John's mind to remember it all and to write it down. I thank you that every time we read it, you have something fresh for us contained in it. Lord, I pray that when we get in the doldrums, when we might be prone to think nobody really cares, we'd always remember you do. You care. And nobody loves us like you. Nobody 
blesses us like you. Nobody can give a calling like you've done for us. And we thank you for that. For Jesus' sake, amen.